We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In honor of putting up with a deeply philosophical podcast, you've earned a football podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yesterday's episode, uh, a meaty philosophical discussion of the implications of the Newcastle takeover by the Saudi Public Wealth Fund or Sovereign Wealth Fund, Public Interest Investment Fund. What, whatever they're calling it these days, you know where the money's coming from and you know how much it is. Uh, we discussed it from all angles. I think we got some things right. I think we got some things wrong. And I think uh, in the feedback, there's been some great indications of where we uh, were both of those things. So thank you for that. You know, it is it is great to be able to discuss a difficult topic with a lot of complexity and have a community of people who come back and say, hey, you know what, like I didn't love the way you said this or this really resonated with me instead of the usual kind of stuff that the internet gets accused of, which is basically like you are history's greatest monster, uh, which is also true, but you know, just didn't happen in this case. So thank you for that. Uh, a pleasant surprise and really appreciate it. And, and obviously over time, I think, Opinions and ideas evolve and develop, so we're still in that stage of it. Today, we're going to talk about the four-game run where we picked up 10 points, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Uh, we'll do that with Scott. We'll do it with Dan Potts, who will be here as well, and talk a little bit about the comparison of the plan this summer and how it looks in the early returns. So I'm excited to do that as well, because uh, I, I think we're already starting to rethink opinions we may have had from the summer, maybe feel that we're right about some of them, but also feel we were wrong about others. And an interlull is a perfect time for that kind of uh, navel-gazing, I think. So, last reminder that not this Sunday, but next Sunday uh, at the Victoria Tavern in Holloway Road, we'll be all getting together. Clive, Tim, James, McNicholas, James, Benj, and yes, me. Uh, but, you know, try to ignore that if you can. And we're all going to uh, do a live podcast, which will be recorded uh, in front of a live audience, and the tickets have been sold for that. But following that at 4.30 p.m. local time, uh, up to 300 people can come for the social hour where we will be doing what social people do, which is mostly, uh, in my case, drinking my face off. And I hope you'll join me for that. So enough with the nonsense. Scott is here. You can find him on Twitter. Don't underscore that. Don't subscribe. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. I should say, you know what? We don't have you on the main pod enough. So let me give you your due. O underscore that underscore crab. 
Uh, and it is Scott's handle. And I, for one, am thrilled that it is so easy to say rolls right off the tongue. Uh, Scott, so since we said we're going to just spend... You know it's a lot easier to type. It's, it's maybe hard to say, but it's not that hard to you know get your finger up there and hold the shift key and press that underscore. I am definitely not going to clip the audio of you saying it's not that hard to get your finger up there and uh, say Scott was saying disgusting stuff on the podcast. I definitely won't do that because I'm a mature individual who is definitely not still in elementary school. So, um, so look, I know we said we weren't going to do the philosophical navel-gazing stuff, but we are, but we're not going to do it philosophically. I want to just get your take on the NUFC takeover, Newcastle United uh, takeover by the uh, Saudi Public Wealth Fund. Not in terms of ethics or morality or what it means for football. I just want to ask you, what is your time horizon? What is your expectation for when the implications of this from a football standpoint will be felt? What do you see as a realistic schedule timetable for the change in Newcastle's fortunes and how substantial do you think that will be? That's a really good question. And I know there was a lot of discussion about this on Twitter yesterday. I think I kind of came down. I guess it depends on what you're what you're asking about. I think that they can probably spend quite a bit of money in the next couple transfer windows and definitely save themselves from relegations. I don't think I mean, they'll spend enough money this January to make sure that they don't do that. Um, I think then they'll spend a lot of money again in the summer. Um, but I think that probably puts them from a bottom table team. And then I think their next step is probably, they probably need uh, two transfer windows to get back into uh, mid table, I think right there. And then maybe you think about another transfer window, two transfer windows to really start getting into the European spots. Um, so that would be, you know, your, your seventh to fifth range. And then maybe another transfer window or two to start fighting for top four. I, I mean, yeah, I don't, there's just so many teams with money that adding one more is just, it's going to make it very tough because I don't see Manchester City holding still. I don't see Chelsea standing still. Um, same thing with Manchester United. Manchester United still going to have as much money as those three teams as well. So I think it's not going to be necessarily super easy, super fast to be able to get into their uh, one of the other things that I was looking at when I was kind of getting an idea about this is what what did PSG do? Um, so PSG, I think, took advantage of uh, probably what a, a similar situation to what we have now. Um, and they basically raided the top talent of the Syria. So they basically spent the first couple of years buying up the best available players there. I could imagine something similar with Newcastle where they go to, say, La Liga or Ligun and basically just buy the best players that aren't part of, you know, Madrid. They might actually get a lot of Barcelona players. Um, but yeah, basically the players that, are the, that aren't on Barcelona or PSG or sort of Madrid and basically use that as their way to do it. It may be a little while before they can get the absolute top, top tier players, but players that were there and are maybe in their thirties. Now the teams would be okay letting them go. Um, I think those will be the targets. I think they will be the up and coming people. They should be able to compete for them as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, depending on what you're asking about, I think the time horizon can be relatively short, but if we're talking about titles, that might be, you know, five, six years away, top four might be four to six years away fighting for Europe where or her arsenal would like to be. I think they might be there in two to three years. See, I think you can move all of that up by about a year or two if they really want to spend the way they can. So yeah, that's, that is the big thing right there. So it's how much 
and how brazen do they want to be? There's there's two possibilities, right? Possibility one is they don't want to turn the whole football world against them. I mean, this is a sports washing effort after all, right? So it doesn't work if the way you spend the money so offends the fo- global football community that you wind up making people hate you. I mean, Newcastle people will love you, but the rest of the football world may hate you. So they may decide to do a slower burn and build, but build gradually and make it feel more organic, even though it's clearly not organic. But if they don't care, if there is a true DGAF attitude about this, they can go in in January and offer 100 million pounds for four different players. Yeah, because And then in the summer, they could do it again and again and again. And you do that, Scott, and, and it's not four to six years to be top four. It's two windows, you know? Yeah, I think they're, they're, I saw the, a rumor that they had kind of said 190 is their budget for January, which is already a lot of money. Um, but if, you just, know, you do just that, the 190 in January. All right, so yeah. so yeah, so never mind. They're going to be mid table forever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that yeah. that that was what our more than our whole summer window, which was our biggest window ever. I guess. Um, well, here's the other thing. Look, they're already talking about approaching Conte. I mean. You can get this Newcastle team with the players they have to mid-table just by moving away from Steve Bruce would be my my assertion. Let me ask you this, because we need to establish the baseline. Are they? I mean, they were a well, lower well, yeah, mid-table team me, with Rafa, and I thought Rafa was a, a good easy. manager for them. Yeah, let me ask you. His style worked perfectly. Well, all right. You're the, you're the stats guy. What did, you, what did your model have them finishing for points going into the season? I, I can I can switch over. It was not good. They were definitely one of the the lower rated teams. Um, so I had them at the start of the year on forty two points. So, so just right just after relegation, yeah, they're, they're definitely 16. fighting in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the funny thing: from forty two points to get into a European place, you need like eighteen points, twenty points. I mean, it's a lot. Right? Yeah. I mean, would you say is that? A, would you agree with my assertion there? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it depends on. I mean, if we're saying seventh place, yeah, you probably need to be in the high fifties. So, yeah, I was going to say add. sixth Europa League, sixty. So, six, that's still six. That's still sixty points ish. Yeah. yeah. So, so the question becomes right. Like, if you go into January and by, and here's the other thing. So, the question isn't do you don't need Holland and Mbappe and Neymar to win the Premier League or even to get it. A Champions League place. Let's remember, Liverpool built a title and Champions League winning team without buying a single renowned global star. The biggest expenditure they had, I believe, was Van Dyke. And you could say he was a renowned star, but they weren't buying him from Madrid or Barca or PSG. They were buying him from Celtic, right? I believe. Did yeah. I get that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so the point is that now look, they hit the most pure 99% outcome on their entire project. That's My point isn't that you can just do that. But if they go and buy the best player off Villa and the best player off Everton and the best player off Southampton and the best player off Burnley and the best player off Brighton and then three really good emerging talents from League on, that can be a top four team very, very easily. And I think, Scott, there's this perception. I want to address this perception from two angles. So again, first first assertion is you don't have to buy the established global superstars because if you can build a starting 11 of excellent players, that's another way to get there. But the first assertion I want to address is there are some people who have the same reaction to this that they did when City were bought. Ah, uh, that you know, what players are going to go there? Oh, Rubinho, you know, whatever. They will get players to go there. I think there are some people that say you're not going to get elite good players 
to go play in Newcastle. So what is your what is your reaction to that that kind of argument against this project? For me, I think um, money covers up a lot of those things. So, especially if you're start, maybe not at the very beginning. That's what I was saying. Maybe you're not going to get the ultra top tier players right away. Um, I think you know, especially if they have the the time horizon of you know, we want to go win something right now and not necessarily um, you know in three or four years. But if you're talking about doubling or troubling somebody's wages, that covers up a lot of. It, I mean, people live in shitty places for a lot of money. Like people go live in, you know, the middle Careful. of Texas. <laughs> I was say the middle, the middle of Texas on an oil, you know, platform, oil, oil platform, doing those kinds of things for months on edge just to get, you know, a, a good pay bump. People do that, and that is a, a huge motivating factor. Um, well, here's the point, Scott. We're not talking about someone going from 60 grand a week to 80 grand a week. What if Newcastle says, hey, you're being offered 80 grand a week at this club. We'll put you on 180. Or we'll put you on 250. Yeah, it just stops. And, and they can do that for, here's the difference. They can do that for every single player. If they want, now we can talk about restrictions and regulations another time. I'm bored by them. I don't want to. I don't think they have teeth. And they only matter once you get into European competition. And there are a lot of ways you can create the illusion of revenue. I have a feeling they're going to have a very, very fancy shirt sponsor in the near future that will definitely be legit. But, um, so, so yeah, right. I mean, they're going to get the players, maybe not the Hollands and the Mbappes, but there are players a tier below that, that if you have 10 or 11 of them, you can be pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the really, if their strategy is let's let's go buy some of the best players. I mean, and the thing that I, you know, people were saying that too. And I was like, I don't know, you think about maybe four or five years ago in the early, you know, I guess the early 2010s, Newcastle had a bunch of international quality players on that team. Uh, they they can attract the talent to this. I think you see that in lots of Premier League teams where there's players that are in the bottom half teams that should be on, or if they were in other leagues would be on top half teams. It's just there's the draw of being in the Premier League. There's the extra wages that you can be on when you're with a Premier League team. And, you know, you take both of those and then add a little bit more on top of it. And I think Newcastle's a, a nice town from everything that I've seen. It's not this tiny little thing. I think the, the metropolitan area is like, it's 700,000 people. That's They're also going to put a lot of investment in it. So suddenly there's going to be some fancy restaurants and some nice hotels and some boutiques and things that make these footballers feel a little bit better about living there. You know, the gentrification that happens. The interesting and, thing and, is, you know, isn't like, there been like a history of a lot of people that, you know, I think Peter Crouch, or, um, Crouch was a, another guy that lived in London and went to Stoke on a, a, a helicopter every day. I think Michael Owen did something similar when he was playing for Newcastle. So it's like, they don't have to live there and you know, they can, you know, and you might say, Oh, well, how will Newcastle fans take to players not living in their city? And what I would say is after putting up with Mike Ashley, if the players parachuted down from, you know, a, a floating cloud city, they'd be thrilled to see them. Here's the other point, Scott though. All right. So maybe some, some player from, you know, the South of France or sunny Spain might say, I don't want to go to Newcastle, but what if they just want to attract the best players in the Premier League? Players who are already very comfortable in England and and you know won't look at Newcastle as some you know fringe place they can't go live. Um, you know what if it's Dominic Calvert Lewin from Everton and what if it's Ollie Watkins from from Villa and what if it's you know yeah what if they go spend the seventy you know million dollars on James Madison. Yeah, what if they offer 180 million pounds to Spurs for Kane in January and Spurs go, God, we got to get rid of this guy. I mean, that's not remotely out of the question. So 
I mean, isn't isn't it also the case that what if, like what if they offer 120 million for Bukayo Saka? What if they offer 120 million for Pierre Emerick Aubameyang? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Lacazette will throw him in. But I mean, well, and and so I, I think we can start to move off this. But it is fair to say they're going to get players. They're going to get players. And so the the timeline is really just how much are they willing to spend? How offensive are they willing to be in their flaunting of rules and regulations and throwing money at the problem? And and that's what would be interesting. And I think. You'll get the first sense of that when Steve Bruce loses his job, you know, I would imagine within the next week, and who comes in to replace him. Don't you think that'll sort like if they can get a Conte, for example, that says to the world, we're not gonna have the slightest problem building this project. If their first manager is a Steven Gerrard, for example, or a Lampard, I would say, well, A, it's not a great sign for how sharp they are, unless it's just meant to be like a goodwill sign. And B, it's not a great indication of the kind of coaching talent they can they can recruit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, do you agree yeah, with that or disagree I, with that? No, I do. I mean, because I think that'll be because I think they could. It's possible they could do an Everton type thing. So I think Everton, you know, they've got you know Usmanov there now, and he's a you know a rich oligarch and has all the money. Well, maybe not the Saudi Arabia money, but he's got enough money to throw around and do that kind of stuff. The Saudi if, sovereign wealth fund would, is a different level. Be, yes. Would be depressed if they woke up with Usmanov's money tomorrow. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but so I think he, they've gone with a, a more slow burn approach. They've done tried to do some splashy kind of things, but I think that they haven't gone full tilt, breaking the rules kind of thing. And if you know that's the way that it, it goes, maybe the the timeline's a little bit longer. But if they just say hey, screw that, we're just gonna buy you know whatever we want, then it could be a lot shorter. So yeah, it is. We will definitely find out um, probably you know in the next. Three months. What's what's well, how they, it's gonna look? They kind of have to burn a bunch quick because the one thing they can't afford. I mean, they can't be relegated. Anything. Yeah, they can't. Yeah, but they they don't want to be relegated because would they would be they, would they be able to spend and bounce right back up? Yes, but you'd have to buy a lower tier of player. Then you have to figure out what to do with those players when you come back up. Moral of the story: I think you see them splash in January. I think you see them. I would suspect get a good coach. The, the one thing I hope is that they don't get a great coach because the thing that would encourage me is look, you can have all the money in the world, but we've seen this at United. If you're run by dummies and they're not that sharp, you can spend a lot of money and make little progress, right? Um, so is the one hope, Scott, that the people who hold the purse strings just aren't sharp, that they don't have the right analysts, they don't have the right scouts, they don't have the right philosophy about how to build the squad, and they just get it wrong persistently slowing down their project? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the idea is always like maybe they go to Galactico and their team just doesn't quite work together. So it's a lot of big names, um, but maybe, you know, they're less than the sum of their parts kind of a thing. That's always a, a possibility when you start seeing teams spend, a, you know, a bunch of money on things like this. All right, so, so let's, and, and by yeah, the way, maybe they won't be super smart. You did make the point, like, what if they come in for a, with $120 million for Bukayo Saka? And I'll just finish on the Newcastle part with this, and this gets closer to the Arsenal issue. There is a sense, or there has been, that good squad building dictates that every player has a price, and if someone comes in and offers you that price, you should take it, because you can use that money to make you stronger than that individual player can make you, right? I mean, that's that's the distillation of the philosophy, that if you have prime Thierry Henry, and someone wants to give you 300 million pounds for him, you sell him, not because there's a better player out there, but that you can make a stronger squad with the 300 million than you can with prime Thierry Henry. Now, whether you agree with that or not, let's set that aside for a second. Scott, the question now becomes, if we can never catch up with what City can spend and Chelsea can spend and United can spend and Newcastle can spend, do we have to start to think about squad building differently in the sense that letting go of the beloved players that you hope to build around 
stops being worth doing because you just don't have the ability to convert that cash into something that closes the gap anyway. Like if you can get 120 million for Saka, but Newcastle are spending 300 million a window. At some point, do you, do you just say, "I'd rather have the player because he's fun and we love him and he's part of our project"? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, I think that's some of the things that have actually been happening in the Premier League, and I think that's kind of why English players come with that extra premium because <laughs> you're not going to get the same um, like return. They don't need the money as badly, I guess, in that same sense. And it's just one of those. Sometimes you just want to hold on to a player to watch him go, and you get more value from him. So yeah, I think there's certainly a possibility that we see something like that. It's interesting, right? If you said to me right now, and and people are going to laugh at what I'm about to say, and they're going to say it's the dumbest thing they've ever heard, but consider some of the other things I've said before you say it's the dumbest thing you've ever heard, because almost certainly there will have been a dumber thing I've said. If you offered to me that we could have sold Thierry Henry one season after we got him, and what we would have done with those proceeds would have allowed us to win the Champions League, but we would not have had Thierry Henry's career at Arsenal. I don't know if I take the deal. And I know there are people screaming, what are you talking about? You wouldn't take a Champions League? What Thierry Henry brought me in joy as a football fan, I'm not sure that having a star over the badge would bring me as much joy as what he did. Now, maybe that is absolutely idiotic. Maybe it's just because of the time when I was rooting for him in my life and in my cycle of fandom for Arsenal. But do you follow what I'm saying, Scott, that like winning is important, certainly, but there's only, you know, one team wins the Champions League and one team wins the league every season. And then there are sort of the smaller trophies and they they still feel good. Everything else is about, you know, the players and loving them and the way they make you feel and the excitement they bring you. And for 38 games a season, for multiple seasons, Thierry Henry, more than 38, you know, 40 games, 45, 50 games, Thierry Henry was absolutely the joy of my sports-watching life. So is there a point at which, you you know, if you know you can't catch up to these guys, you have to start thinking a little bit more about what is the goal of a club, of a fan base, in terms of enjoying your experience? I think we could call this the the Nicholas and Yelka test. I can't say the word right. Can you help me out? Just Yelka. Just, you know, it's phonetic. Yeah, okay. Um, I think we called that one because, what, he was with Arsenal for one season when he was amazing and then sold him and that funded the training ground and Thierry Henry like that would I mean if you would have asked right after maybe he had the potential to be one of the most exciting players you know the I think big, he kinda, the big sulk I think there were some yeah, some I mean, personality he, issues there, there certainly was but you know I don't I don't think anybody doubted his talent and how, what he could do when he was on I think I, it was I mean, Ian Wright who said he's one of the most talented football players he's ever seen in practice like like yeah. one of the best ever yeah so I mean I think that is kind of the test so it's like that one, it, Thierry Henry could have been that. I mean, what if? What if it was? I don't know. It's it's one of those things. Like it's but hard that, to prove it, a negative, though, right? Like I can't predict. But yeah, that turned into yeah, turned into Thierry. Yeah. Well, all right, all right. Enough of that. We've gone yeah. down a very interesting, bizarre path that I am yeah. sure everybody will have been delighted to listen to. But you know what? This is a bonus podcast, so save it. Um, let's talk Arsenal. Four games, yeah, ten points. Uh, earns enough to earn Arteta manager of the month. Uh, good for him. Very happy for him. Uh, recognized for the results. But we are a podcast that talks about process. So it is a very good set of results. Before we get to the process, what has what have these results from these four games done for you in terms of your model, mathematically, in terms of improving Arsenal's potential finishing place this season? Um, unfortunately, not that much. Oh, great. Uh, so, Terrific. Yeah. 
So looking at it after week three, Arsenal were 51 points. We are now at 53 points. So we gained a bit. But uh, the other thing that is just the performance have been okay. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, you look at it, and I think you could say that the defense has been pretty good. Um, the attack has been hard to say. I mean, it's. I think a lot of that is how you deal with the Spurs match because that one is one where we scored three goals from two and a half chances and called off the dogs though game state, right? We exactly. sort of so sat that, on the lead. The thing. And yeah. I think, and I think if we continued to attack into that second half, we were significantly better than them. Like that first half, like we basically everything we wanted to do ended up with the ball close to their goal. And I think that we were significantly better than them. So I think that it really depends on how you factor in that. And that's why it's really hard to kind of look at things at just four matches um, against Norwich. I think the attack was good. Um, Burnley, I think we've talked a lot about that where it was okay. It was again where it's like the execution wasn't there. I think you could kind of see some process stuff. The execution was lacking. I think in Brighton, you could say similar kinds of things. Like you could kind of see what we were trying to do, but the execution kind of wasn't there. And I think, you know, when we kind of looked at that first half rewatch, you could see what we were set up to do. Didn't quite come off. Um, So I think there's, I'd say that there's two and a half good performances in that. Yeah, so that's kind of where I I land. I think there's two and a half good performances in there. Let me ask you a more difficult question to answer. Given what we are trying to do, and I think we sort of get the system at this point. You know, we're long past the days with Arteta where it was a different 11 every week and a different system every week. It looks a lot more consistent in terms of what we're trying to do. Can you envision, based on what you've seen these last four games, the players he's picking, the system he's using, a situation where, at some point in this season, this system, as it currently exists, is regularly producing the volume of shots and good chances needed to be a top five or six attack in the league? No, I don't. I mean, I think... We're does gonna, it need it, to be? Does it need to be? It depends on how good the defense is going to be. I mean, if we're going to play with a, you know, a top five or six defense, then your attack can be a little bit worse. But I mean... I I look at the talent and I feel like this should be, you should be able to get a top six attack from this team. But I really do feel like we're still kind of stuck in that eighth play, like right in the middle, like eighth to 10th range with the way that it's just, it's so constrained. And I, and I worry about that because I mean, it, I look at the, the schedule that we had, and this is probably the easiest stretch of the season that we're going to have. You know the average strength that we've we've played here. It was the the nineteenth easiest, so or I guess our nineteenth hardest. So one of the easiest runs over the last four games, and our attack just ranks like I think we're. I'm gonna see what I'm gonna look here. Our overall attack rating was tenth. So this is during the, that four game run. During the four game run, mm-hmm. again that so we had that, the tenth best attack over these last four games. And again, there's the caveats of. Tottenham where that one was called off. So it was, it was only, we only played really a half of attack against them. So if you want to bump it up a little bit, uh, maybe we're probably closer to seventh or eighth best attack here, but it's like, if this is going to be how we do and probably our easiest run of the season, there's concerns. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard. Um, I want to see things better, but I'm not convinced. And I think we are, we still got another, I think a month or so, um, we have until we have Liverpool 
And I think that's really kind of where I'm making up my mind. So it's it's still really tough, right? Like I don't I don't know what to make of this team yet. I feel like we're we've kind of landed on a first. 11 i mean maybe you could say 12 or 13 so i think there's a, a couple you know attacking players that you can kind of mix and match and do those kinds of things um do we want to go with the 433 or the 4231 like those are the kind of like things at the margin but i think we've kind of landed on a system and players that we want to have in that system now it's just a matter of getting the execution for that and i think there's probably a good four or five more games left to try to see if Mikel Arteta can do that for it. I, I hate to say that, but it, it probably is, right? I don't know. I mean, it, the, the, the thing I would say is, what do I always say I want Arsenal to be able to do? Go attack bad teams and and create good chances against bad teams and potentially score a lot of goals against bad teams. Now, Brentford is not a bad team. We had a bad lineup. Chelsea is not a bad team. Manchester City is not a bad team. Burnley away isn't an easy game. It's sort of tricky. We shaded it fine. Spurs at home, great performance. Brighton away, terrible weather, good team, tricky game. We didn't perform very well. But Are they a good team? So, um, well, I know underlying metrics would say no, but I would say the way they're coached and the way they're put together and the press that they have, I, that is not a team where you go and you say go to Brighton away in that weather and dominate them. But I'm, I'm building to a point. Um, the game that we've played this season, we'd say, if I said to you in a vacuum, Norwich at home is a game where we should put up a ton of XG, create a lot of chances, and batter them. That game was three expected goals to 0.6 expected goals. So the one sliver metrics-wise I can look at is say, in the game that I would point to out of all the 38 games of the season, where our attack should look good by underlying metrics, create a lot of chances, and batter the opposition, we did. Now, the unfortunate part is we only scored a goal, Um, and that's... That's not great. But, I mean, is that at least fair to say that we've had one game this season, really, where you'd say that Arsenal should show up and sh- show up and batter that team in that game? And that's the Norwich game at home, and we did. Just didn't score the goals. Or is that, over, is that being a Pollyanna? Is that overly optimistic? I think we have two more of those coming up. Mm-hmm. Which two? Oh, coming up. Um, so I think the if we're if we're looking at you know using the same kind of thing, I so I'd say Crystal Palace right after the international break. That's one that. I think that we should be able to dominate again. Um, I think Crystal Palace has actually made me kind of reconsider where I think of them. I had them as one of the worst teams coming into the season. I think that um, they have performed a lot better. So maybe I've changed my priors a little bit on them. But I still think that that's a a team that we should be very good against. Um, And then the other one is Watford at home. Uh, Watford has not been good. I think they are almost as bad as Norwich. So I think if we have two good performances against them, um, I'm going to be a lot more happy. and I think Aston Villa and Leicester should be good measuring sticks for teams that are pretty close to par for us. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. this yeah, this, this is another four-game run uh, that I think really does kind of say, all right, we've got, we've got our settled team. We've got kind of what Mar- Mikel Arteta wants this team to be able to do. We've seen the flashes of it. The execution's been just off. This is the run to show it or not show it. Leicester and Villa are great examples of games where if you want to be a top six team, you go out and you beat those teams because those are the teams that also want to be top six teams. And at some point, look, you you can only get so far battering the bottom seven or eight teams in the league. If you want to be in Europe, you're going to have to take points off the, the sort of mid-table-ish teams and prove that you're not one of them. You're slightly above that. And so those are games where we have to do that. I want to touch on one thing you put on Twitter 
you talked about our expected goals and our expected goals allowed yes. versus the teams we play. In other words, how we compare to the, their other opponents. Can you explain this in sort of plain English? Because I, I think even people listening were like, oh, data, data, data. Like this is this is actually pretty interesting and telling stuff if we can sort of describe it in a way that's plain English. Yeah, so this is something that I've been doing for a while because um, I do think it's interesting because I think it's a, a good way to kind of adjust for the teams you're playing. So one of the things that I look at here, so let's just take the, the Brentford match as a, a good example. So um, in that match, Arsenal created 1.5 expected goals. Typically, what Brentford have been allowing is about 1.1. So that means that we have actually looked better compared to the other teams that have played Brentford. So that would be a positive for us. Um, Brentford created 1.3 expected goals. Arsenal typically have allowed 1.6. So that is one of those things that, all right, we actually held Brentford to um, below what we've been doing against other teams and um, those kinds of things. So that becomes a positive. Um, and so just trying to look at different ways to adjust for the strength of teams played, because that's something that is huge in the beginning part of the season. Um, some teams haven't had, you know, matches against the top six and those kinds of things. So I wanted to try to figure out a way to kind of adjust for that. Um, the other thing I, I look, I try to look at, especially once we actually get past 10 weeks in the season is kind of looking at that as the a barometer. And this is something that also helps me to kind of see, all right, if you've had a good run, um, is it just that you've played easy teams and that's why your numbers look good? Are you doing significantly better than the other teams that have faced them? And it's just a, a, a way that I try to look at things and make adjustments to be Here's able to, I like to see. Yeah. Let's say all your games have been against bad teams, but you have trounced those bad teams more than other teams have. Yeah. Or all your games have been against great teams but you have gotten less battered by those teams than other teams do, then that can at least give you some sense of how you're performing versus other uh, teams in the same position. So if you say to me, against Tottenham Hotspur, we created more expected goals than teams they play, and we allowed more expected goals than teams they play, I'd say that's not just a win, that's a really good performance, even for against a bad Tottenham. But maybe you say, actually, no, that's not the case. So we'll cut to the chase. What did you find in terms of how we're performing in attack and in defense versus the other opponents these teams have faced? Um, not good. Um, so in attack, we've been 73%. So that means we're um, creating about 26% less than the typical teams that have faced the same opponents that we have. Um, and then in attack, it's 124%. So that means it's 24% better, or sorry, 24% more than what they would normally do against other teams. So, so in other words, we are creating 24% fewer 26 percent sorry 26 percent yeah. so that means if we typically averaged uh one xg per game or the teams that have played the same schedule that we have typically averaged one xg a game um we would create 0.73 so we're we're and below. almost a mirror image of that in terms of what we're allowing so exactly now so. here's what people are going to scream to you in response you can't count the first three games because we didn't have our players and whether you agree with that or disagree with that, I'm inclined to be uh, sympathetic to that view. So can you put it in a context for just the four-game run? I can. But first, let me address that. Mm -hmm. That's part of the season. You got to plan for it. 
those games aren't like I know we we joke that it's part of the preseason, but they're not. So like that's something that counts. You know, can I respond to that real quick? Of course. I hate the idea that the only time we're allowed to judge this team, this manager, this club is in perfect conditions. I hate that idea. I hate the idea that, oh, this player wasn't available, it doesn't count. Oh, the weather was bad, doesn't count. Oh, the pitch was dry, doesn't count. But, but, I do think for those first couple of games, the lateness with which the players were made unavailable, the number of players that were unavailable, the number of players that hadn't even been brought in yet, I think if you want to complain about anything, complain that we went into the start of the season not properly prepared for the season to start, which is a totally fair accusation. But I am slightly more willing to be sympathetic to, I mean, going into a game against Brentford, for example, with none of the three first recognized starters at strike, no Aubameyang, no Lacazette, not even any Enkedia. At the back, no Gabriel, Tomiyasu not arrived yet, no Ben White. I mean, and again, I totally agree with you that we have gone way overboard with the idea that unless everything is perfect, the games don't count. But I do think those were somewhat extraordinary situations right at the beginning of the season. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, yeah, it's to me. And the, if the one if we're going to throw one of them out, it's probably going to be Man City because that's the red card. Um, I'd still say even then, like even before the red card, we are getting dominated. It probably doesn't turn as bad if we have an 11 versus 11, but that's the one that I think if we're really going to say that is the outlier, that's the one that you do because what, what injuries happen. Everybody is going to have injury crisis. Yeah. We mm-hmm. just happen to have ours right at the beginning of the season when we hadn't finished doing our shopping um, to bring in the players that we needed. But it's like everybody was in that same situation. There was a lot of people that had players coming back from the euros. There's a lot of players or a lot of teams that were in that same situation where the, the market was frozen, the transfer market, where players weren't being able to come in. So uh, almost everybody had similar kinds of issues at the yeah. end of the year. We, we, I mean, the striker stuff, that one extraordinary, but that's going to happen. And I like, <laughs> look at Liverpool last year. They were Absolutely. down to yeah. like, yeah, they were pulling guys out of the reserves. It's our warm bodies out of the stands. If there was actually players allowed or fans allowed in the stands to play center back for them. Like that stuff happens during the season. It How much just does that suck? You can't even pull in a fan to play center back because there were no fans at the ground. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this kind of stuff happens. Yes, it sucks. You should take it into account, but I don't think that it, to me, it feels irresponsible to totally pick and choose. And I think Arsenal are the best at picking and choosing end dates that make us look good. Right. We, we loved the after um, boxing day stuff. We last loved year. the calendar year title under Arsene Wenger. And now we love a post boxing day resurgence. Um, so yes, I, I we do this because it helps us feel good about it. Um, but I don't think that it's right to fully. I, I, yes, I, I would certainly cherry pick start end dates to make myself look good and those kinds of things. But I, I think you shouldn't do it without good reason. Um, as we were saying into the the last four matches, um, Arsenal's attack, it, things are better. It's not nearly as bad as what it was. Um, so in attack, we are creating 81% of the typical and allowing 106% of the typical. So still not great. Um, I'd say that we're, we've been about the 10th best team over this run. So I think it was a, a little generous to, to give Arteta the, the manager of the month stuff. I guess the, that's what happens when you win three of three. But I don't think that the overall performances were um, extraordinary. So it's a, still a work in progress for me. So basically, against this run of four teams that we played, we produced fewer expected goals by 
roughly 20%, right? What was it, 19%? What was it, 81%? Yes, yeah, so it was 81%. So yeah, roughly 19 19% fewer expected goals than other teams playing that same opposition. And we were almost par, about 6% worse defensively against that same opposition. And to be fair, leading in three of those games means game state is probably going to lead you to concede just a little bit more chances than you might otherwise. So, yeah, and, and I think you can, if you, if you want to go back and that's why, you know, we're starting to get into the small sample size stuff and there's not enough games to kind of cancel some of these things out. Cause I think there was a couple chances on Brentford where if, if we take, take a uh, break and turn into a shot that probably gets us another 0.3, in expected goals and makes that one look a lot better. Um, so instead of it being, uh, you know, a 75% day, maybe it's a 110% day. Um, but yeah, it's just, there was just, we're, we're been okay. What has to happen for us to finish top six? What percentage likelihood do you have for us to finish top six? And what would happen, let's say over the next, you know, month of games, for you to feel that we were on a trajectory where top six started to feel like more of a likelihood in your view. Yeah. So I've got us 11%. So there's a 11% for yeah. Top six. Oh, so I mean, that's the Europa league. So, I mean, if you throw in the champions league too, that was another 2%. So you're, we're looking at about 13% for top six right now for Mm. for Arsenal, for me, Mm -hmm. we are right in the middle of the, the muddy middle squished together mid table. There's a lot of teams that I think are roughly even, and it's going to take us really probably over the next four games. I think we're going to have to play well. That'll really be kind of a thing. Yeah, because I'm looking at this, and there are um, there are six teams that I have between 52 and 55 points, and Sick. Arsenal wow. are right there. So okay. it's yeah, that's that's why it's so congested right now. So there's a, a lot of teams. So and we play two of them. So we play against Leicester. We play against Aston Villa. We win those. Those are six point matches. So that it's a, a huge swing because right now they're probably thirty, you know, thirty, thirty, thirty kind of odds. Where you know that'll be a, a huge change to things. So beating the people that we are directly competing against will go a long way um, to being able to do that. So there is a, a lot to be decided over the next four games. I think on November twenty seventh. Newcastle come to the Emirates, and I think we'll smash them. I think we'll beat them. So. Let me ask you a question. Will it be the last time we ever do it? <laughs> <laughs> there's a chance that next year too, right? That, that'll be another one where they're still maybe in a transition mode and they've only spent you know 300 million on new players, and so there's still a <laughs> chance that they're... It's, it's funny because it comes in a run. It's, it's Liverpool away, Newcastle at home, United away. And that run right now looks like, all right, hard, easy, hard. And like a season from now, that would look like the worst run ever. So we'll, we'll take, take what we can get. Look, Scott, I, I, I think this is great because I think we, we got a chance to sort of level set expectations a little bit. And if people think that the way you're looking at it may be a little more pessimistic, that's where the data falls right now. But again, early in the season, and the players are still settling in, and the manager's still establishing what he wants to do. I, you know, I think we can be as open-minded about it as we want, but I, I agree with you in this respect. Now we need to see a clear upward trajectory in the metrics, in the approach, in the chances we create. Now, I think it can happen. I'm not ruling it out, but that's what has to happen next, so I hope it does. Yeah, and and I, think there's a, I think there's that, that foundation that's there. I think we have... One of the things that we haven't had in a long time is basically an established 11 that everybody feels comfortable with and that everybody kind of, we know how we want to play. That foundation has been laid. Now it's just a matter, is is it good enough? Can yeah, it I produce think, what we need to be able to do from that? 
from an attacking standpoint, you know, you look at a bench on a match day and Pepe might be on it and Lacazette might be on it and Gabriel Martinelli might be on it. And, you know, there, there are players in there that can, that can come in and do stuff. So it's not just the first 11. I think there's some firepower on the bench too, to change games. And uh, I, you know, let's hope we unlock that a little bit more. It'll be a lot more fun to see. Um, I will ask you, Scott, uh, do you prefer a bite-sized candy bar or a full-size candy bar? I prefer two different fun-sized candy bars. Okay, because because according to my Manscaped copy, the Lawnmower 4.0 can turn a bite-sized candy bar into a full-size candy bar. Now, I don't know what that means, but I presume it is uh, graphic and, and relatively related to uh, uh, adult content. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let you know that uh, we are still lovingly promoting Manscaped and the Lawnmower 4.0 and their fall package so to speak, right now. I mean, look, there's there's all kinds of stuff in here about scare away vampires with the new body wash, but that to me gives the impression that the body wash is garlic scented, which it is not. It is actually a nice smelling scent. They have a body wash. They have the weed whacker, which does nose and ear hair. They have the lawnmower 4.0, which you're coming to our live event. You will see my lawnmower 4.0 because I literally never go anywhere without it. I have a utility belt like Batman, and it's in there. The weed whacker's in there. Uh, they have tonics and all kinds of stuff. Comes with a nice shed travel bag, which I'll be bringing to London. So that's very convenient. Look, it's this simple. You do groom, so pick the tool you want to groom with. And even if you think these promos are silly, and even if you think that they're puerile and infantile and childish and sophomoric, and all of those things are true, let's be honest, they're great products. They're great products. A wet, dry shaver that has phenomenal battery life, a nice, bright light, skin-safe technology. All it takes is nicking yourself once when you're shaving tender areas of your body. And like you never, ever, ever want that to happen again. So get the Lawnmower 4.0. Get this, this kit that they have. You can use your promo code ArsenalVision and save 20% and get free shipping worldwide. So you just do it. Go to manscaped.com, promo code Arsenal Vision, 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Manscaped.com, promo code Arsenal Vision. Scott, is that enough of that? It is. I mean, you know what? And um because I always listen to these on the on the Patreon. So I don't I don't get to see these. I just get the the first parts and then you're right into Clive cringing. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's really nice to actually be a part of it. And I, I appreciate that. And, and hear the cringe firsthand. Remember, if you are a patron, you get ad-free versions. You do not have to hear any of this. Uh, so you don't even know what pants pumpkins are, do you? Not yet, no. I got to level with you? I don't know what the fuck pants pumpkins are either. But they're things that apparently the lawnmower takes care of. That's enough of you. Scott's on Twitter. Don't underscore that underscore crab. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Elliot. Quick break. Dan Potts after the break. Stay with us. Okay, we're back. And look, sometimes you talk to people on a podcast and you're really excited about it. Sometimes you don't know what to expect about it. But like the one thing is like, I do podcasts. You know, podcasts are like the minor leagues. You know, the big leagues are like YouTube. You talk to a YouTuber, it's like, holy cow, celebrity. So uh, Dan was uh, nice enough to have me on his YouTube channel previously. And uh, I certainly said at the time that I wanted to return the favor and have on the podcast. And so that is what we're doing right now. It is my pleasure to welcome Dan Potts. You find him on Twitter at DanArsenal87. Hello, Dan. Elliot, absolute pleasure to come on. Thank you so much, uh, first of all, for joining uh, us on the channel and for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be on. Massive fan of your content and uh, oh, and of you, of course, Elliot. So thank you, man. 
<laughs> that makes you the one, you and my mom. So I and I know that when I was on your channel, your mom was in there uh, super chatting and stuff. So we we have that in common. Um, <laughs> so so what I wanted to do with the time we had you today is is row back to the summer, re-examine what our expectations were, and then compare that with the early returns. Now I realize it's a little messy because we had the pre-window closing period. We don't necessarily have to talk about that. We can touch on it a little bit. But let's start, first of all, with our expectations from the window and the transfers we brought in. And it's it's a lot. It's White. It's Ramsdale. It's Tomiyasu. It's Odegaard. It's Tavares. It's Sambi Lakanga. When you looked at that group before the season started, do you feel that the club had done, A, the amount of business it needed, and B, the quality of business needed to sort of take, not the step all the way up to where we ultimately want to go, but whatever the next sort of step in our progression needed to be. Well, I think when you look at the window overall, first of all, a lot of people were disappointed. Uh, they were kind of saying it was a it was a shambles of a window. I always thought that was a bit extreme, if I'm honest with you. I would I would say that potentially in some areas of the pitch it was underwhelming. You know, I think we all wanted a Basuma, not a Laconga. We all wanted a, a Madison or, or one of those bigger marquee names instead of an Erdegaard. Uh, but when you look at what we did bring in, I think we can be quite confident that we brought in the right positions, whether or not you loved the player or you thought it was the right uh, calibre of player in terms of their talent. I think we can say that we did need a goalkeeper. Uh, we certainly needed a right back and a cover for left back because Kalasanac, I think, is one of the worst we've had in a long time. Um, mm. We certainly needed a centre-half if we wasn't going to bring William Saliba back in. Uh, defensive midfield was definitely a, an issue and a partner for Thomas Party. And of course, the number 10 role, or whether you want to call it an attacking eight, was something we definitely needed to bring in. So if you look at that, Elliot, you kind of think perhaps we were a striker away and a Basuma away from it being a, a, an outstanding window, you know, like a, a nine or 10 out of 10 window. But when you look I, at I will stop you just for a second and say that in referencing Basuma, certainly that is prior to recent allegations. So I just want to get that on the record. <laughs> uh, g- given the yeah. circumstances, I think all of us would be happy to have dodged that bullet and feel terribly about the allegations. I want to say they are allegations and rumors. And as time of recording, we don't have a lot of information, but I just know there'll be some people be like, Oh, you want Basuma now? And I, I, I certainly don't think that's no, and, uh, that's what you're saying. <laughs> and and you're you're right to stop me there because of course we don't uh, condone what has, uh, you know, allegedly uh, supposedly yeah. gone on. More information to come um, out. I just wanted to make absolutely. sure that, that people understood that it, you were saying that type of person. And in the summer, I think we all would have been excited about him. Obviously, things change. Yeah, yeah well, things do change as we've seen mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a lot lately, and as we've seen today as well. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, when you look at the situation of the transfer window, I could see why people were particularly under underwhelming in some of those signings. But actually to look at our squad, Elliot, I think that we have probably got on paper a much better squad than people are giving us credit for. Because if you think that Unai Emery took that squad to one point away from top four and Tobacco, which we won't go into because we've spoken about that a lot and it does become very depressing. However, <laughs> if you actually look at what he did with the likes of Iwobi, Mikatarian, Danny Welbeck, Mustafi, Socrates, El Nini, Shaka, Natural Monreal, Lauren Koscielny, uh, Petr Cech, you think, wow, look how much that team's changed now. And look how much it is for the better. You know, you can't tell me that people would rather have Welbeck and Iwobi than Smith Rowe and Saka, or they would rather have. Uh, Mustafi and Socrates than Gabriel and Ben White. Would they rather have Monreal or Kieran Tierney? I mean, I was a fan of Monreal, but I think Kieran Tierney's better. Um, would they rather have Thomas Partey or Mohamed Elneny still? So I look at that situation and think that we have definitely improved upon those positions. And I've never really been 
too far off where Mikel Arteta and Edu have gone off the pitch. I have massive question marks about what they're doing on the pitch and we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Yep. But when it, mm-hmm. comes to, when it comes to what they've done off the pitch, I've understood all of the signings. Like a, Some of them they got wrong. Yeah, I mean, the William one I wasn't too sure about. Sabayos I never really understood. Um, Cedric and Pablo Marie, some may have question marks over and I certainly had question marks over Runnison. But actually, when you look at the ones that have come in, like the Thomas Parties and the Gabriels, and not just the players they've brought in that I've just mentioned from this window, but actually the players they've tied down to long-term contracts, Martinelli, Saka, Smith-Rowe, obviously Kieran Tierney. I look at that situation and think I can understand where they're going off the pitch with a young crop of players. And I understand that they want to implement this young model. But I have question marks on the pitch. So for your answer your question in terms of where I expected us to be at the close of the deadline, mm-hmm. I would have said we should have had enough quality, in my opinion, in this squad to be finishing fifth or sixth this season. So that would be where I would say be realistic. I think the top four, listen, I think we could get close. I've looked at some of the, you know, some of the teams um, that people are saying are guaranteed that top four place. I think we have question marks over Manchester United because of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, not, not, nothing else. Um, but actually, when you look at things realistically and on paper, I don't think we should be too far off looking at fifth or sixth place, fighting with the likes of West Ham and Leicester. And, you know, I know things can change. Everton love a good, had a good start. I don't think Tottenham look as good as they were last season. So when I look on paper, you know, if you said to me, Dan, where do you think we will realistically be? I would say fifth or sixth would be a realistic target personally. Yeah. And I, I think that's absolutely fair. Look, I think you've gone through that in a very level-headed and rational way. I, like with any set of transfers, you have two ways you have to analyze it, right, Dan? One is, Does the strategy make sense? Did we do the things that strategically, squad building, tactically seem to make sense? The second level of analysis is, did we get the individual targets right? I am much more willing to criticize and analyze and debate the former. The latter is fun. It's fun to talk about, oh, we should have gotten this player instead of that player. But basically, it's the club's job to pick the right players. So while maybe I had questions about Ramsdale or Ben White, when I look at what we did, I think... There are aspects of it that make sense to me strategically and ones where I might have preferred us to go a different way. I mean, would I rather have seen us go, you know, striker and another attacker, striker and certainly, you know, a Shaka upgrade and maybe kick the can down the road on center back and let Saliba do it or something? You know, I'm open to that. But I think in general, we did a lot of business. And what I like is it was young with upside. Um, I think there was some great value. Guys like Odegaard, I think the price we paid for him was spot on. Sambi Lakanga and Tavares look like bright young players with a good future. Tomiyasu has, has so far been a revelation. I think he's a player who fits exactly what Arteta wants to do on the pitch brilliantly. Would he be a right back for a new manager? He might not be, but I think he could slot in as a center back for a new manager, so I'm not so worried about it. I think there's some questions about whether center back and goalkeeper were a priority, but so far White and 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 Ramsdale look pretty good. Ramsdale in particular, I think, has won a lot of people over, myself included. So all good things for the most part. Now, in terms of where that group should take us, Dan, for me, I have been clear and probably clear to the point of aggravating people uh, with the repetitiveness that I thought the next step for Arteta was to show that the attack can go up a level, that we can sustain periods of of attacking dominance where we have territorial advantage, where we're able to press and recover the ball, create more high-quality chances. Now, I'm willing to throw the first three games of the season out. Some people wouldn't be, and that's fair, but I am. Um, I think when we look at the next four games... Obviously, I would take 10 points from those four games all day long. I mean, I think that's a perfectly fine return. I don't think any of the performances were bad. I think the Spurs game, at least for a half of it, was great, and then there was nothing left in it, so fine. You know, game state, we sat back. 
But I don't think you can look at any of those games, save, you know, 20 or 30 minutes in the Spurs game where you'd say, we really have started to see an evolution of this attack that looks like it can grow into one of the best, you know, four or five or so attacks in the league. So in terms of analyzing what we've done so far this season, and maybe with a focus on this four-game run, do you have the same sort of sense that that's still the missing piece? How do you look at this resurgence? Um, you know, granted, it's a short one because we only have the four games to go by, but but what it has meant in terms of what might come next. I think it's interesting you bring up about what football we've seen that's been exciting and attacking this season. And let's be honest, it's been 35 minutes um, in these yeah. in these seven games. That's worrying, Elliot, for me, because as much as it's great that we're building the foundations from the back and we certainly look better, actually, you'd like to think we would look better because he's bought five new defenders. So if we're not, sorry, I say four, five five new, uh, a back line, basically, apart from Kiarantini, everyone else is new, you know, including the goalkeeper. So you'd like to think that the person that he's brought in is going to be better than what was there. When I look at how we play, I just feel like there's a, a kind of restrictiveness, um, if that's even a word, <laughs> to mm-hmm. allow these guys to have some flair. Because you can't tell me that Thomas Tuchel, Jurgen Klopp, Unai Emery and Arsene Wenger can all get 25 to 31 goals from Aubameyang, but Arteta can only get 10 to 15. Now, something's wrong with a style of play there for me because this player just doesn't become poor overnight. Now, I know that off the pitch, he had some problems last season. It looks to me as if he's come back a lot better, a lot sharper, um, albeit fairly poor against Brighton, but a lot of them were. I thought he was exceptional against Spurs. So there's definitely a player still there. He's not lost his pace. He's not looked like he's any less sharp as far as I'm concerned. But the style of play doesn't seem to suit him. I honestly believe we've got a player in Nicolas Pepe. I'm a huge fan of what I see. I thought at the back end of the season um, made me vote him to be player of the season for this year for Arsenal because I think he is that good. However, I'm not seeing a style of play or a formation or a shape or style that seems to suit this guy. And I want to see that. Um, Sakharin Smith-Rowe, there's so much pressure on them. They scored seven goals combined last season. So they're not going to be our saviours like everybody believes because the stats don't prove that they will be. So... I'm not seeing a style of play and people just say, give him time. He has had a lot of time, Elliot. He's had 20 months now, in my opinion, to show us a style of play. And what I'm seeing is people say he hasn't had enough time. Well, he's had three transfer windows. This is now his start. This is now his squad. And I've seen Dean Smith. I've seen Rafa Benitez, who, by the way, has turned Townsend and Gray into Ribery and Rob, uh, Robin <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden yeah. and implemented a style of play. Um, I've seen Graham Potter with much worse players give a style of play. Um, and likewise, Mar- Marcelo Bielsa, forever much you love that style of play, it is a style of play. Now, I don't mind if the style of play is not attractive because that's how your style of play is. But I can't tell you what sort of manager Mikel Arteta is in 20 months yet. And, you know, everybody hates Stan Allardyce and um, people will say David Moyes is not good enough and Sean Dyche, they wouldn't want that style of play. I wouldn't either, not for one minute, but I know what style of play they are. I know what I'm going to expect if one of those managers was to come in at Arsenal. I can't work out what Mikel Arteta wants to do. Sometimes I see playing out from the back. Sometimes I see possession football. I see glimpses of passing in triangles and I see glimpses of high intensity pressure, which lasts for, let's say, 60 minutes and that's a good game. Then it goes again. So I see all these glimpses. I see all these formations. I see inverted right backs, then they disappear. I see free at the back that won us the FA Cup. He's disappeared and never gone back to that. I've seen him play false nines, Thomas Party on his own, Granite Chakra at left back. All this 
bizarre stuff. And I think, where are we going here? What are we trying to achieve? So I think to answer your question in terms of the attacking style, yes, that is definitely something he's got to improve on. And I feel like we've gone complete opposite to where we were with both Emery and, and Arsene Wenger now, because we always knew what style of play we were going to be. We always knew it was going to be an attacking, free-flowing style of football. But guess what? We're going to concede two or three potentially each game. But mm. we're probably going to score three or four. And some, in some means, we're going to score five or six. And I haven't seen us do that for a long, long time. I mean, to win 6-0 against West Brom's under-18s was probably the only time I've seen Mikel Arteta win by more than two or three goals. Um, so it's a real worry for me and concern going forward. And I think that he needs to implement that now somehow, whether he wants to play this positional play that seems that people have now plucked out the air, which is now a cooler style of football, apparently, which beforehand was just two words, um, or whether he wants to go through this kind of... Um, uh, four three three that people are saying he wants to try and move towards whatever it be I need to see something more at the moment which is going to allow us to at least be convinced that we may score two or three goals in a game because at the moment it's looking like we're struggling to score one yeah I I think it's difficult too because there's there is the obvious point that with young players it takes time and there's going to be an unevenness to it and the attack is really interesting because the striker is Past his prime. That doesn't mean he's not great. Doesn't mean he can't still do well. But he is, you know, he is, what, what is he, 32, I guess? Um, yeah. The other attackers are 20, 22, 21, 23. So, I mean, I, I think it is fair to say that some of the challenge in building an attack that way is you have a striker who is going to have some more off days than he once would have at this stage of his career and a, you know, a series of supporting performers that, that are young. And so I do want to focus on Pepe for a second. We're going to have to make a decision next summer, I think, about whether to sell or, re or, you know, or resign him if we want to retain any transfer value in him. He is behind Saka in his preferred spot. He may be behind Smith Rowe uh, on the left and you know who knows who else. He's a player that has performed well at times under Arteta. And I won't go so far as to say Arteta doesn't like him. I don't think that's the case. But I think he's not a neat fit for the kind of very technical possession-oriented football, specific, you know, tactical football that Arteta wants to play. And he's been a bit uneven, if we're being fair. But he is the one attacker we have that's really entering his prime. You know, 24, 25, 26, those, those ages, 27, when you really hit your prime and peak. And I think you don't want your entire attack based on either, you know, overage players or players that are not yet there. So what would you do with the future of Nicola Pepe? He clearly has the ability but I don't think he fully has the trust of the manager. And I think we're reaching a decision point with him pretty soon in terms of whether his future is going to be with Arsenal, if he even wants that, or whether it might be cash in and try to find someone that more neatly fits what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it, about Nicolas Pepe? Because there's no doubt in my mind that the player is frustrating. Okay, he is frustrating at times because the amount of times you see the talent he has and then you have a, a game where he's isolated. But I honestly believe that for however bad his touch can be and for however frustrating he is when he tries to take on too many players or when he just gets that final ball wrong or when he just beats that man and takes the ball too far wide, he is 100% the most threatening player going forward. More threatening, in my opinion, than Lacazette and Aubameyang, more threatening mm. than Saka and Smith-Rowe. So whether you love or hate him, the stats don't lie. His numbers are better than anybody's. And if you compare them to two legends of the club in their first two seasons, they're better. And the two players I'm talking about are Robert Perez and Freddie Lundberg. If you compare the numbers, 
they're better. So Pepe has the ability. There's nothing, no doubt about that. He has the talent. Now, some would say, oh, Robert, Robert Perez, that's unfair because he was he was injured for his second year really badly. But actually, when you look at the, the game time that Pepe's had, it's much less. Robert Perez was playing 90 minutes for most of those games because let's be honest, he deserved to be. He was one of our best players. Pepe was being brought on. He was being brought off. And he's still got the same numbers as Freddie Lundberg and Robert Perez in their first two seasons. Now, Nicolas Pepe, if he would have been a £25 million signing, I think everybody would be raving about this guy. Because he was £72 million, I think we're expecting him to be Cristiano Ronaldo. And that just was never going to be the case. And I don't think he should be blamed for the amount of money that we spent on him. What I'm saying is, with him, is I don't believe he deserves the amount of criticism that some of the fans are giving him, as opposed to other players. Um, when I look at what we can do with him in terms of his future at Arsenal, that really is down to what Mikel Arteta's future is. Because I believe that if Mikel Arteta is the long-term plan or long-term answer that a lot of the fans are believing he's going to be, and certainly the board and, and owners believe he is the right man, it seems, for the long term, I worry about Nicolas Pepe's future. And I think that we can't let this guy run his contract down and we have got to try to get some money for him in the summer if we do not believe that he is the future or if Arteta doesn't believe in the future. But I honestly believe it will be a shame if we do lose him because I think there's a talent there. And I just feel we need a system to watch him shine. If he went into a system of a Bayern Munich, a Liverpool, a Man City, let's say, um, I think he would shine. Now, he might not get in the team now, but what I'm talking about is that style of play. If we were to see an attacking style of play um, that we all love and all love to watch in a Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola style, I think he would be an absolute star. And I think it's a massive shame, Elliot, because it hasn't worked out for him. That, that, that For some reason, the fans don't, don't buy into Nicolas Pepe for whatever reason. And I think that's a shame because I think there's there's definitely a talent there. And for me, it has to be made this summer as to what happens with him. I just hope he has a fantastic season and the stats, again, don't lie um, and proves that he is the player that I believe that he is. Yeah, and I think that's fair. You know, it's... I'm I'm with you in the sense that like I I like attacking football I like flair players I can't help it I'm always a little more inclined to see the good in them and the possibility in them and the the upside of them than I am other types of players just because they're fun right fantasy yeah. players you know players that add a little fantasy on the pitch are fun that can pull something really special out of the top drawer and he can but I understand the people that get driven nuts by him. You know, that beating, trying to beat a man twice, then three times, and not getting the cross yeah. in or not playing the passes quickly. I almost wonder there is a part of me that says, since we don't have a great striker at the club right now behind Aubameyang, you know, Lacazette can do a job still, I understand. I'd love to see Pepe get chances 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there through the middle. I think he holds the ball up a lot better than people give him credit for. I think when he's in the center of the pitch, he's a little more instinctive with his play. The defenders can't use the touchline to sort of marshal him as well. I think he is capable of going to either foot, maybe even a little more than Sack. I think he's he's in, he's willing to use his right foot. We've seen him score some lovely goals with his right foot. I'd, I'd like to see him in there and see if he can spark off Sack and Smith Rowe a little bit more, you know, in games when maybe Aubameyang's not available. The problem with trying stuff like that, Dan, is that you just, you just don't have the Europa League games. You don't have the fixtures to, to experiment. And experimenting in the Premier League is a really dangerous thing to do. There's no room for error. So that leads me to sort of a last quick topic. There are a couple of players who look very much on the outside at the moment and the fixtures aren't there to get them in the team. Balogun is one of them. I assume he's going to go on loan in January because he needs to be playing grown-up football at a regular basis. The reserves are, are probably no longer going to do it for him and the minutes aren't there. Another one is Gabriel Martinelli, a player that I will admit I speculate about being a potential star, but it is still mostly notional. What do you think is the right way 
for the club and for Mikel Arteta to handle. Some of these players that are at a point in their career where they really do need to be playing, Pepe, but he will play. Martinelli, it's less clear. There are one or two others in the team like that um, where there's no path to their playing time. Is it time to consider loaning players like that out to ensure that their progression isn't blocked? Or given the you know African Cup of Nations coming and inevitable, you know, some injuries, it's impossible to get away without any of them, that those players just have to be patient and bide their time, but their time will come. And namely Martinelli. I think that's really the one that people would mostly be curious about. Yeah, I think Martinelli's the one that, that certainly comes to mind. I was amazed, if I'm honest with you, Elliot, that Balogun wasn't loaned out, particularly when we kept hold of Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah. I thought that it was definitely time for him to play men's football. You know, it's great seeing him in the under-23s killing it. We all want that to see that with our youth. But actually... I'd love to see him up front for Palace or Brighton or, you know, uh, one of the teams that's come out with this Norwich or whoever it be, because I just want to see him playing Premier League football and mm. let's see how good this guy is. You know, everybody said that he played against Brentford. It was disappointing. Likewise, Martinelli, who will come on to, but I, I thought that was harsh. Um, I, I really want to like both of these players. And I think that if they're not going to play football, they need to be playing football. Um, the problem we've got is there's two kind of size to this isn't there because we're not playing as many games because like you rightly say there's no Europe but I don't really want Martinelli to be loaned out because I believe that we are an injury away from him being given his chance and what frustrates me the most is that he's not getting his chance already because I saw the other night against Brighton I, I was at the game soaking wet and um, I, I thought to myself the board the board's come up Martinelli will come on here because we need a goal and it was Maitland-Niles and as much as I could kind of logically understand that perhaps Arteta had some plans in there to be a little bit more worried or cautious because that seems to be uh, his kind of style is being kind of um, overcautious. Mm. I was just disappointed because I just thought that we could have been a chance there to see who I believe has got a ceiling as high, if not higher than Smith Rowe and certainly on the same par uh, as Saka. When he came on the scene under Unai Emery, I thought, who, who is Saka? We, we've not seen Saka. We don't want Saka coming in. We want Martinelli to come in. He was better. You know, when, you know, years ago when Ramsey and Wilshere came through and one was behind the other. And if it wasn't for Ramsey getting that injury, then Wilshere would have been that guy. It was kind of like, it's kind of like that for me. It's kind of like Martinelli with that injury. If he wouldn't have been injured, we might have seen, you know, uh, Saka and Smith Rowe coming through with Martinelli and all three of them being like, wow, free at one time. Amazing. And because of that injury, it's not allowed him to do that. Now, I have question marks over whether this manager actually does rate Gabriel Martinelli because whenever he's interviewed, he says he does. Of course he's going to. He's not going to say he doesn't, is he? Mm-hmm. I just say that the, show me, they say actions that speak louder than words. Show me you rate this guy by putting him into the team and giving him the time that I believe he deserves. And, you know, there's rumours about him becoming frustrating. I, I personally feel a lot of that is is paper talk because it's the international break and it's something to talk about. But actually, perhaps there is some truth in it because if I was Gabriel Martinelli, I would be frustrated when I see um, Martin Erdegaard and Smith Rowe being played on the left and Pepe being then used over there and then Saka used over there and then Aubameyang being dropped down on the left and then Lacazette coming on in the front in, in the front man and then Eddie and Ketia getting a chance again this season. So as much as Gabriel Martinelli got his chance against that uh, Wimbledon and, and obviously won a, won a penalty, I just think then that we need to see some more of him because I'll never forget the performances that he had under Unai Emery, the 10 goals he scored in his first season. And all of a sudden we're seeing this kid that we thought, wow, this is going to be our, our number one talent. And you know, Saka and Smith-Rowe have since come into that and that's brilliant and, that, and deservedly so. They've been both been fantastic. But when I look at Martinelli's future, it does worry me, Elliot, because I think where, again, where does this manager see this player fitting into this side? Like Pepe, 
I'm totally with you with Pepe. The, the games I've seen Pepe play uh, at the number 10 role or on the left-hand side, it's been fantastic. In the FA Cup final, he was brilliant there. Against Wolves last season, he was brilliant there. I saw him against Liverpool alongside Aubameyang at Anfield. He was the only player, I think, still to dribble past Van Dijk. Superb. They, they, were, they, they could not handle him. So we've got two players there that I really feel have a long-term future at Arsenal for the next five, you know, five to eight years. And we're looking at, you know, potentially one of them being a decision made in the summer. And we might have to look at this one being a decision summer saying now in January to get some loan time for some games. This is worrying for me. And again, I, I just feel it's potential mismanagement by, by our manager. I really do. Well, the good news is there will inevitably be injuries. <laughs> this might, this conversation <laughs> might look uh, totally pointless, but I, look, I, I agree with you that these are complicated choices. The one thing that I will say we can sometimes use selection as a way to as a stick to beat managers with, and I I have definitely been guilty of it. But all managers play favorites. All managers have tactical approaches that suit some players more than others. Players' roles at a club tend to be more durable because they change less frequently than managers do. But we'll just have to see. I think Martinelli's future is still there, um, but this season we may not get to see the progression we hoped, and that's why we need to be back. In Europe, even if it is just the Europa League. And I, I do think that the odds are that we could get there. Let's leave it there. That's good for now. We'll definitely have to do it again, Dan, though, because I really enjoy hearing what you have to say and enjoyed talking to you on your show as well. So I uh, definitely want to follow Dan and, and check out his stuff. Uh, he's on Twitter at DanArsenal87. Dan, thank you so much. Elliot, thank you so much, man. Absolute pleasure. Well, the pleasure was mine and uh, and the listeners. And certainly, uh, we'll be talking to you again in the near future. Look, my name is Elliot Smith. You know that. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody in London in the not-too-distant future. So that's going to be great. Uh, a lot of fun stuff coming up ahead. We got more shows planned, but I'm not going to read the litany of them off to you. You know what they are. <laughs> they'll, they'll be here every day. Just keep checking the feed. So we'll leave it there. Hope you enjoyed it. A little bit of Arsenal chat for a change. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, pals. No. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.